Well, the phrase a deep clean has come once more back into the vocabulary, has it not, with the coronavirus. And you could say that one of the purposes of the letter of James, written by a brother of Christ uh, in, in earthly kinship terms, you could say that the purpose of this is partly to bring a spiritual deep clean to the Christians. James was a leading figure in the church at Jerusalem. We meet him particularly in Acts chapter 15. And as an elder of that church, uh, he would have had much opportunity through pastoral work to experience uh, what we are particularly looking at here, which is the use of the tongue amongst Christians, both its good use and its bad use. And the letter, particularly in our readings, we saw reference to professing Christians who were wealthy and yet showed anything but a Christian spirit in the use of their wealth uh, and also suffering and temptation and frustration. We see there are problems amongst the believers and where there are problems, of course, there is always the temptation to say the wrong thing. As uh, one of the theologians of recent centuries, James Denny, said, the worst of speaking without thinking is that you say what you think. And of course, sometimes what we think is, is godless and wrong. How does this letter theologically fit into the New Testament? Well, we could say it is a letter uh, from one very broad brush perspective, it is a letter about justification. The merit of our justification before God is Jesus Christ. It's through him we are justified. The instrument, the way in which we are justified, as Romans and Galatians makes clear, is by faith. We're justified by faith in him. And the declaration, the evidence that we are justified is in our good works, as James chapter 2 particularly makes clear. And it's that aspect of justification that James is looking at here. It's not justification by works, but it is justification by faith, which shows itself in our works. And James particularly uh, looks at the use of the tongue. As one of the Puritans has said, most of a man's sins are in his words. It's a, a deep th thought, isn't it? Most of a man's sins are in his words. And what I want to do, uh, uh, brothers and sisters, this morning is to look through the letter of James from that perspective, to look firstly at negative uses of the tongue and then secondly at positive instruction on the use of our tongues. And may I just say, I have no intention or, or thought of getting one over you here. I speak, these are words to me, a sinner uh, too, and I need to hear what we are looking at. So just picking it up, uh, it's a thematic study this morning. We start off with wrong uses of the tongue. Uh, and let's start where James starts in chapter 1 and verse 6 with the whole matter of prayer. Of course, some prayer, a lot of prayer is private, it's inward, uh, but I think he would include in his statement here public prayer 
as he says, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. And so it is a wrong use of our tongue when we pray and we do not believe, really believe that God is able or willing to do what we ask. I'm not saying that we have for every prayer to have a conviction that's exactly what he will do. Of course, it's only the prayer of faith, according to Mark chapter 11, that particularly given prayer, that we ever get into that conviction. Occasionally, the Holy Spirit leads us there. But normally, our prayer is under the caveat, thy will be done, and you know best, Lord. But having said that, how often have we prayed, have we uttered the words, and deep in our hearts we thought, God couldn't do that. God can't cope with that. It's, it's beyond him to give me wisdom or help in this particular problem. You know, this is one too, too difficult for God. That's a wrong use of the tongue. Secondly, <clears throat> verse 13 of our chapter. Let no man say when he is tempted... I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now, of course, I doubt very much any of us here have heard the, very, the words utter literally, God has just tempted me. It's possible that we've heard those or even said those things. That is clearly not, uh, not allowed. That's clearly something which is wrong but what in principle is he saying well in principle he's saying we're not to speak profane words about God our words are not to be casting doubt on his character such that for example when something happens in providence in the world or in our lives we kind of say, well, you know, God, God is, is to blame about this. Uh, and, and God is not altogether in control of this. Why did God allow this? That's a profane statement about God. It is ascribing to God what the Bible says should not be ascribed to God, that he is not the author of sin. Although there is a devil And although God is sovereign, and therefore even the devil's activities are used by God for good, God is in no way a cooperator with evil. God in no way approves of sin. And therefore, when we are tempted, God is not behind the temptation. Your own sinful heart, or the devil, is behind the temptation. Thirdly, Verses one, verses 19 to 20 of chapter 1. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. What's he speaking about? I think we have absolutely no difficulty in understanding what he's saying here. That angry words from an angry spirit, don't work, even if they are in a good cause. It is incredibly difficult to be angry without sinning. 
It is possible to be angry without sinning. That is why the scriptures say, be ye angry and sin not. Anger in and of itself is not an ungodly emotion. Jesus had moments of anger. Remember, one of those was when they brought the little children to him to bless. And his disciples tried to shoo them away. That's one of the uh, few occasions in the Gospels where we read of Jesus being angry. But the anger was quickly replaced. It was under control. It wasn't diluted with sin. It wasn't uh, polluted with sin, I should say. And so anger against sin is something that is potentially good when filled with the Holy Spirit. But so often, of course, our anger can be of a different kind, can be of a different species. And so he warns us about the use of our tongues. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. In other words, one of the ways in which we can control our tongues is not uttering straight away what has come into our minds. As we heard earlier, the worst of speaking without thinking is that you say what you think. Then we come fourthly to chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Here is a particularly obnoxious, I would suggest, an obnoxious use of our tongues. If any man among you seem to be religious and brideth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. Pure and religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Uh, Here, James is speaking to obviously something that was there in the churches in his day. He's speaking to an empty and hypocritical piety. In other words, we speak like evangelical Christians. We talk the talk, but we're not walking the walk. We're not showing forth our faith in Christ in love for God and love for the saints and concern for the lost and concern for those in need. So on Sundays, fantastic, dressed up for Sunday worship, taking part, singing the hymns, listening to the sermons. But Mondays to Saturdays, it's very different in the workplace, in the family, in the marriage, at school, at college, at work. It's a very different scene. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue. In other words, once you're out of, out of the purview of the church, is your tongue as controlled as in the church? All these things I speak to myself as well as to you. James is doing a spiritual deep clean. You know, the, the uh, suits and the, the breathing masks and the implements. We need this, dear friends. We need this. Come now to chapter 2 and verse 3. Here the thought is of someone coming into the assembly who's dressed very well, obviously good clothes, expensive clothes, obviously someone from an, uh, an upper class or a, a well-heeled 
uh, kind of person. And then there's, there's also a down and out, a beggar. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say to him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Now the principle here, there's obviously a, a, a specific occasion for this which is being addressed, but the principle here is words that spring from bias, words that spring from contempt, from bias against a background, whether it be race or class or uh, to do with wealth. Of course, bias can be quite subtle. The specific instruction, for example, in the Pentateuch, against what we might call reverse snobbery. In Exodus chapter 23 and verse 3, we find this surprising statement, neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. Moses is not speaking now against uh, the person who is rich and deliberately down, down treads someone who's poor. He's speaking about justice, so-called, which is working in the reverse direction. We might call it liberation theology. That because this person is poor, because this person comes from a disadvantaged background, you particularly favor that person, but you despise people at the other end of the spectrum. You despised people who obviously have been to a particular kind of school, good school, and obviously particularly well brought up. Well, that's one kind of reverse snobbery that... The Bible is against, but any, whether it's in that direction or in the direction that's here in James chapter 2, any words that spring from, in fact, an underlying contempt. And then, sixthly, chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. This is at a time when it seems that the Christian ministry is particularly popular and many are volunteering and and thinking that they should be teaching and perhaps teaching all kinds of things uh, that are not correct, that are not according to the word of God and offending in the kind of things they say about God, the kind of doctrine and the way they show forth uh, the revelation that's in Christ Jesus. And basically, what he is against here, what the word of God is, is, is nailing here, is saying things that God has not called us to. Saying things that God has not called us to. You know, the Lord said to me, Did he? I doubt it. I doubt it because what the Lord has said, he said to the prophets and he said to the apostles. That's when the Lord speaks directly. There's another way of saying that that's less gross and it's it's clearer and more helpful, which is I believe the Lord is leading me in this direction. That's better. That's humbler. But not the Lord said to me, that this particular person is this and that particular situation is that. Saying what God has not called us to. 
It's a real danger is this. Even the great George Whitfield had to repent that early on in his ministry when God was so using him uh, and blessing his ministry that he, particularly in America, he was saying this particular minister is clearly not born again, is clearly not a Christian, and that particular minister is clearly not a Christian. And afterwards he repented of that because he said it without evidence. He said it uh, just from an inward feeling. He was aspiring to a place that God had only called the prophets and apostles to. The apostle says, I say through the grace that is given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. You know, you, you think you have all the situations of a particular all the aspects of a particular pastoral situation summed up and you decide that this is what God is calling uh, to be done in this situation. So you, you assert this. Well, that's very similar to this kind of sin. Be not many teachers. It's, it's interesting that when there's real nasty, difficult pastoral work to be done, uh, suddenly there's no one around to do it. Yes, let us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God in this matter. And then chapter 3 and verse eight, verses 8 to 11 and chapter 5, verse 12. What's he addressing here? But the tongue no man can tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith curse we men, and which, which are made after the similitude of God, Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? And so on. He gives further illustrations of that. And then chapter 5, verse 12. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, Let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. As far as the converted Jews were concerned, Christ was speaking to a particular religious culture issue which he addresses in the Sermon on the Mount, which is that the Pharisees, the rabbis, had found a way round taking the name of the Lord in vain because they invented what we might call uh, white curses, safe oaths. So instead of saying by God, which they would never say, they would say by the temple or by, some, by the mountain or something. But it was still an oath. It was still lacing the tongue with an oath and therefore ultimately cursing. Of course, the Bible tells us that we should not take the name of our Lord in vain, that so cursing, swearing, Bad language, oaths, are utterly forbidden. Now, just as the converted Jews had a particular religious background and culture, I'm sure many of us have, uh, in our unregenerate past, which we all had, have had a particular culture to confront here, where the name of Christ was taken regularly in vain, And oh my God, and those kinds of statements. 
I had the privilege of going to a boarding school, but one of the things that was not a privilege was the language. The language was terrible. And one thing I knew when God in grace and mercy saved me was that there had to be no more language like that. But you see, when you are frustrated, when there are problems, when there are issues of, as it is in James, of certain classes of people throwing their weight around and oppressing others, it's easy to become uptight. And then all that baggage from an unregenerate past to begin to spew forth. And this is what he's saying, brethren, that is not the way to go. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. You can't both be a sweet fountain and a bitter fountain. You can't both bring forth one kind of fruit and another kind of fruit. The Holy Spirit enables us to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. So this is the seventh wrong use of the tongue. And then we come to the final one I'm going to identify in chapter 4 and verse 11. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. And in chapter 5, verse 9, grudge not or groan not one against another, brethren. He's speaking here of, we might call it, hypercriticism, being hypercritical. Now, the Bible, what is the most quoted verse in the Bible? It's not that God is love, but the most quoted verse in the Bible in society is judge not. Ah, but there are times the Bible says we are to use our discernment and discrimination Uh, We are to understand that certain kinds of teaching are false and to say so. And we are to understand that certain kind of behavior is false and to stand up to it. But having said that, there's a difference between a godly kind of alertness and hypercriticism and character assassination and complaining one against another. And it's forbidden. It's against justification. It brings a question mark over our justification, over your justification or my justification when we speak evil one of another. This is not a pure sweet fountain that is springing forth. It's something very different. He that speaketh evil of his brother judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the Lord. You speak as though you are the lawgiver when you start taking to bits the character of that other brother or sister. There's only one judge. There's only one to whom we shall give an account. So we need these drains cleaning, don't we, friends? We need these crevices in our lives, uh, disinfecting. We need to come to scriptures like this and to be cleansed by the word of God, to confess our sins and to be uh, inoculated against such wickedness. Now briefly, what positive things does James tell us about the positive use of our tongues, about ways in which we can, by God's grace, avoid these sins that James identifies for us? And firstly, this is not in order of the 
passages, but I'm just taking it in some sort of order, possibly an order of priority. But firstly, let us identify humility. Humility. Chapter 4, verses 6 to 10. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, unto God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he shall lift you up. And obviously the ethos here, which will affect the whole heart, the whole behavior, and especially the tongue, is an ethos of, who am I? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And my heart needs cleansing. I need purifying. And I'm not proud of myself. I'm not proud of my past. I'm not proud of my present. That is surely a way to control, help control our tongues. Chapter 5, verse 16. Confess what? Your triumphs one to another? No, your faults one to another. Now that, of course, is a text that's been misused in the past. We know that. It was misused in the Rwanda revival, for example, in the early 20th century, where there was a genuine awakening, but people started confessing the very thoughts and temptations that came into their heads, and it caused problems. Confess First, to God, and then to the person you have sinned against. And then with due regard for what you have to say, whether it is edifying or not, and how you say it. That's, we have to bring all of Scripture to bear, don't we, in any particular text. But there is a place for confessing your faults one to another, and praying one for another, that you may be healed all part of humility. And then second, we might say, laboring for peace and love amongst the brethren. Chapter 3, verse 18. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So one way to sow the fruit in righteousness, uh, one way not to sow the fruit of righteousness is to do nothing is to not lift a finger to help the spirit of the fellowship and the spirit of love and of peace. Just do nothing. Just be a passive sponge. That's a way not to sow the fruit of righteousness, to make peace. There are various ways in which we can make peace. We can speak things that are helpful one to another. We can... Uh, speak of Christ, we can speak of his word, we can ask after one another in a kind way, we can share things that are positive and wholesome, uh, and we can recognize that all of this creation and all of the providence of God, it all belongs to us in Christ. There's so much to talk about. Here's a particular way in which we can labor for peace and love in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way 
shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Here's someone who's going astray, a professing Christian. And someone, he's to be turned around. He or she is to be turned around. So perhaps the way not to turn them around is to immediately denounce them or criticize them behind their back. But as Galatians 6 says, we are to draw alongside in a spirit of meekness, considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So here's a very positive way in which we can labor for peace and love. So humility, love, and then thirdly, we might, uh, this is a feeble statement, a feeble phrase, but uh, appropriate responses. Chapter 5, verse 13 This is a a tremendous text of scripture. Chapter 5, verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any cheerful or merry, as the A.V. puts it? Let him sing psalms, possibly let him sing praises. So what he's saying is that whatever your state of mind, there is something your tongue can do. He doesn't say, is any among you afflicted? Let him sing psalms. Of course not. Although I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. As C.H. Spurgeon reminds us, when you are afflicted, you tend to sing in the minor key, not the major key. Of course, it's against nature to sing in the major key when you are afflicted, but there's something you can do with your tongue when you're afflicted, it is to pray. And there's something you can do with your tongue, when you are cheerful, when you're feeling good, when the feel-good factor is there, it is to praise God. So if you're cheerful, if the feel-good factor is there, if things are going right, don't start mourning and moaning and, and confessing your sin in some sort of negative way. Just express in praise. It's a verse that covers all of life and our tongue The use of our tongue in all of life. And then chapter 5. The whole chapter, of course, is about prayer. It's all about prayer. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's a good use of the tongue. Praying particularly in the fellowship of the church. And also praying privately. And then finally... In chapter 3 and verse 17, chapter 3, verse 17, we're reminded that this wisdom, this God-fearing use of our tongue comes from heaven, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. It is really the Spirit of Christ And as we have been describing what we should not use our tongues for and what we should use our tongues for, of course, all of that is mirrored to us in the Gospels, in the incarnate life of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who indeed was gentle, who indeed was pure, who was peaceable, who didn't just... Ignore and, 
and become bitter against the scribes and Pharisees. He said more to them than to any other person as as the Gospels recorded, of course, he said a lot to his disciples, but so many discourses to the Pharisees because he cared about them. He wanted to turn them. And so there was no partiality, there was no bias, there was no hypocrisy in Christ. He was transparent in his godliness as an incarnate man. So to be filled with the Spirit of Christ... Well, may God give us all these things, how we lack these things and how we need his grace.